0: Where are we with uh,
1: Zach Parker and Dimitris Andre in terms of that bid situation? it has been put back for 10 days. Is a deal reaching? No, we're in we don't had any contact. We've rang, but there's been no negotiation of contact. We've caught, reached out, reached out. But you know what? It's not done in 10 days. We'll just go to the purse bid. not going to mess around with it. Get on with it. How aggressive are you going to go for that purse I am we're very aggressive. I like drink. Furiosity. So we're going to be really aggressive with that bid. You know, I had four cans and I'd... I'd, Bob, I had four cans of this before, the 41, It's brilliant, four cans before we put the 41 million dollar bid in. Furiosity, you, the drink that wins purse bits. And welcome back to the
0: number one podcast in the sport where we have a new king and Frank Warren is his name, all hail King Frank, but we'll come on to that later. I might just call these ones Monday Mass. It's always a good time to bring the congregation together, the Beyond Boxing Congregation, and we can all give thanks to the boxing gods for another week of boxing, You know, both fight-wise and gossip-wise and the usual. But I think, yeah, we'll anchor these ones as like a Monday Mass. Maybe I'll just get on my pulpit and start venting a bit. But I wanted to talk about Saturday's show. Now, some of my tweets were pretty cutting on Saturday. Some of them were pretty, you know, close to the knuckle but also some of them were pretty positive there were some elements in there that i quite enjoyed one thing i will say is i do regret not being at the show now um the way the way my 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 week went was crazy so i thought i might be at my mum's this weekend and then she flipped it and said well she had some stuff to do in london so she'd come and stay with me so then i ended up you know you get to a certain age and you essentially you do you 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 look after your mum, you babysit, it's like reverse parenting, but it's fun. Mum's a lovely woman, and it was really, really nice having her. But I did actually regret not being there, because it's what I call a reunion show. Um, like some of the Sky shows are, because there are enough local talents available and around, that it brings all the old war horses out. So it's always nice to be around us. My friend Simon Rose got his his Instagram grift fully on on that one. And it was just nice to see all the, all, all the old faces were there. You know, Danny Davis, obviously I just said Simon, um, the Haglins, all of the, you it know, all came out. Young Frankie Hanratty, one of my, one of my favorite people in boxing. You know, always wish I could have trained him more, but you know, I caught him, I probably the age he's at now, he'd be a hell of a fighter, but I sort of had him when he was younger and, you know, when you're young, you've got all these distractions, but a great young man. And that's what it seemed Ali Pally was full of on Saturday. It was just a load of great young men and women. Everyone was there passionate about boxing. So in that sense, I'm going to give Eddie a big tick. And I wish Eddie did more of those kinds of shows like at Ali Pali or Royal Albert Hall. It doesn't always have to be blockbuster. Sometimes just a a good venue that draws in a good crowd and you know that you've spent your your two three hundred quid and it's been worth it you know frank does that except you get the customary fight sky looking to do that as well with boxer which is also good we need a lot more of that where not everything has to be hollywood sometimes you just want that bread and butter ticking over where people can connect you know, trainers can connect, you can put fighters on, you can arrange the sparring, maybe someone needs to get signed or needs to be seen by a promoter, those sorts of things. And I think a show like Saturday is really good for that, as long as it's structured the right way. I think the challenge Eddie's got, and he'll hear this because I know he does, he's too proud to admit some of these shows are B-level shows. And I don't mean that in a, in a disrespectful way. For example, in rugby, you have the A-League. And what's your A-League for? It's for your young players coming through and it's for your players coming back from injury. Is it a terrible standard? No, because what happens with an A-League, and I know because I've played A-League games before, your club will get a call. So my club at the time was pretty, pretty high up in the leagues. You get a call, have you got anyone that fancies a game on Monday? And you go, yeah, all right, we'll play. And so it's a decent standard of play. and You get to meet players from other clubs and it's nice. You get to where the kit of a decent team every so often. And you know it's not the top of the top, but you know it's competitive enough. And that's what that show was on Saturday. It wasn't the top of the top, but it was enough to be reasonably compelling. And I think Eddie needs to be honest and admit he's going to be doing tiered shows and we need to know what's what. You can't sell everything like it's Joshua Klitschko, for God's sake. That And that's also his problem. Because he's only got one way to sell, he just almost he weaves disappointment into his messages because everything's the greatest ever. Everything's the best ever. And you, you just kind of get Hearn fatigue. Sometimes just say, look, got a load of prospects on here. Give them a few quid before Easter. Let them get away on holiday. We've got a main event here because I've just got to give these guys a fight. I've just got to get them out. They're not on career high paydays, but look, it's a fight that leads somewhere. That's what I need to know. Jacobs versus Ryder. I'll watch it load of prospects on there, cool, we'll watch it. It's not a mainstream show, but it's a show you would watch if you're at home and you've got a few beers. And here's the thing. If Eddie came out on IFL and he just said, look, Coogan, I'm going to have some shows that don't have superstars on them because I'm trying to build superstars. I need the fans to be patient with me. But I am going to put them in tough fights. I'm going to show you that these guys are the real deal. They're not going to be babied all the way up. If he did that, I think he'd have a lot more sympathy and we'd give Eddie more time. But he hasn't got that humility in him. And I think that's the frustration. And if I was being promoted by Eddie, that would be my frustration too. Because the toxicity that's aimed at him is going to land at your door as well. And the toxicity is aimed at him because it's like, mate, just tell the damn truth for once. Uh, The paradox of boxing is boxing is a sport that when you walk into a boxing gym you can pretty much trust all the people you know in there there's like an implicit trust between everyone and then you've got eddie hearn and his model is the exact opposite of that where there is no trust and loyalty is tangential at best and this is why fans and why people in this board get frustrated with it but now it's just some high level things like the disowned product doesn't work for me and I, I i call the product something different from the the show right for me, the product is the way it's packaged and delivered to the fans who aren't in attendance. And there's not much about it I like. I'm not a Costello fan. I don't think Costello is an upgrade on Adam Smith. I don't think Costello is an upgrade on Nick Helling. I don't think he's an... He's not even an upgrade on John Rawling. And that's saying something. He's, he's proved to me that he's out of his depth. At that level, and with that kind of focus on him, you know, he hes just—he can't bring himself away from the detail. You know, some, someone should whisper in Mike Costello's ear. You know that everyone can mostly see what's going on on TV, right? I don't want to disrespect people who have, you know, visual impairments and stuff, but you can broadly see what's happening on TV. You know, you know who's got who—who's in the blue trunks and whatnot. So, uh, I'm trying to think of how, how you can sort of save him. Because Mike's knowledgeable, but then they all are. Adam's knowledgeable. Uh, John Rawling's knowledgeable. Nick Helen was knowledgeable, and he was a hell of a presenter. Uh, then I look across from Mike Costello, you've got Andy Lee. And I don't, I don't understand what Andy Lee's watching most of the time because he's mastered the art of just digging in the cliche box. And when when he first did it, we thought, oh my God, this is really insightful. But we realized he just brought a different box of tricks to what Matthew Macklin would normally bring. For me, the reason you have an ex-pro or a trainer alongside Mike Costello is this. We want to know what the fighter's thinking at this point. So I want Andy Lee to tell me. Yo, this, this guy's under the cosh, he's in the corner. What is he thinking? What's going through? What do those shots feel like when you're tired? I want to know that. Like, Tell me what's going on in that ring, and then between rounds, you tell me what the tactics should be. That's, that, you're meant to be giving me expert insight. Don't just pretty much repeat what Mike Costello is saying. That's, that's poor colour commentary. You know? Because if you're not going to talk to me about the boxing, at least talk to me about the storyline. Sell me the next fight, or you know, sell me the previous fight, whatever you want to do. But Andy Lee doesn't do anything. He it's almost like some of these guys go on there just to show that they're smarter than the average fan, and we're like, Well, duh, <laughs> this is a sport you've done since you're a kid. Well, the hell do you expect? So, so he doesn't work for me, Darren Barker doesn't work for me. He sounds like James Tony if Tony fought 30 more times. It doesn't work for me. Chris Lloyd has never worked for me. And I, and I, <laughs> I don't know why. Here's what I'm going to suggest. The reason I don't like Chris Lloyd is he strikes me as a guy that likes to be around tough guys without being one himself. That's what it feels like. You know like those guys who become photographers so they can take pictures of women that they'll never get close to. Always makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable because it's not like you see Chris Lloyd actively involved in boxing. You know, every so often he'll tell you that he advised Joshua Boatsy how to throw the perfect left hook to the body and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, great. Okay, you know, bang your own drum and stuff. Like, you know, he got Angel Fernandez a training facility in Loughborough. Well, yeah. <laughs> okay, then. But you never really see him active. You don't see him at the grassroots. You don't see him anywhere. Nor do you see Darren Barker really, so that's always a worry to me when I'm like, well, so what are you doing in the sport? If we don't see you, and I should see everyone, if we don't see you, what are you doing? Just training lawyers and bankers, right? Those guys that can pay 80 quid an hour, they're the guys you're training, right? That's, that's how you're staying close to what's happening in boxing, by training the bankers and the lawyers and the management consultants. Cool. Well done. That's my frustration. A lot of these guys aren't entertaining enough. I don't understand why we don't just get Caldwell and Belly on there. Right? Because I, as much as people get annoyed by Belly, Belly's a really good commentator. And he knows when to, to be brutally honest. And he knows when not to. Same with Dave Caldwell. Dave's quite insightful as a commentator. You know, don't, don't let the, the public persona fool you. He really knows the sport. I'd quite like to see that. I wouldn't even mind seeing Johnny Nelson commentate. But he's on Sky, I just realised that. I'm not going to edit that out either. But I wouldn't mind seeing new faces commentate. You know, David Hayes, a gun for hire, get him involved. So there are loads of guys that they could get that I'd like to see. I'd like to see a guy like Clinton Woods come back. And let's just have some brutal honesty. You know, where's Martin Murray? Does he even want to be involved? I don't know. But there are loads of people they could get. And they never seem to, they never seem to want to change that formula. But it doesn't work for a lot of people. So I, I'm not really sold on the product. Um, I thought Gabe Rosado was really good. I like the fact that he came in the, in the burgundy suit. Looked a bit like the Joker. But love that look. You know, he Gabe will always be Gabe. Connor Ben. Connor was just on matchroom message, wasn't he? Like, they gave him his talking points, they gave him his key messages, and he got them over. Not entertaining, but not not fatal either. And I think what we can take for absolute certain is the Maya Jammer experiment is done and dusted. And I don't know what the story is with Maya Jammer matchroom and the zone. I really don't. What I do know for certain is she gets with Ben Simmons, gets engaged. Ben Simmons is now a Nets player, so she's now right in the hotbed of new york you know so you you're visible at the barclays center i i think her direction is now america i don't think we'll see my jam on these shores again and not necessarily good riddance i just don't think she added anything and i don't think she was that enthusiastic about boxing once she realized josh was not going to be on the zone so yeah the product needs a lot of work that whole game change thing hasn't changed for the better, it's probably changed for the worse. And I'm not a fan of how it's presented to the public. Just not. not it, it feels, you know, the Irish expression is what well, it all feels a bit rinky dink to me. So I'm not, you know, not sold on it. I'm also not sold on the matchmaking. There's something really bizarre about Matchroom's matchmaking over the last probably year and a half, two years. And it seems to be that they've relied more on this. Churchy guy, the Italian guy, and he seems to be matchmaking based off box wreck, like Paul Reddy was just literally matchmaking based on box wreck with no thoughts on, well, actually, how do these stars mesh together? You know, what is the young prospect going to get out of this fight? And what you're finding is because they're getting the matchmaking wrong, you're either not getting the right kind of test or you're taking years off someone's career. They could have got someone like a Jason McClory, you know, who's now working with Dennis. They could have got someone like that. And I'm not saying you would have had 100% better matches, but you would have had an improvement. Because at least he thinks from that perspective, actually, what's going to work for the guy. You know, we, we haven't really nailed this matchmaking thing in this country since we lost Dean Powell. And it's becoming an art that people don't really want to engage in, but it's the most important thing in boxing because it determines the career, it determines the product, and it determines the revenue. You match make right, your stable will kill it. Absolutely kill it. And that's what you're seeing with Oscar's Golden Boy stable. They get their matchmaking, bang on. The matchmaking with Al Heyman, pretty much bang on. And Bob's always been good at matchmaking because they understand what it takes to, to develop a career. And I, I just think Matchroom have got that wrong. And what it means is we end up being frustrated as British fans because we don't get what we need and we don't get what we deserve. And more importantly, what Tazona have been unable to do through Matchroom is build stars. And I think a big part of that's down to the matchmaking. But if we just jump into the nuts and bolts of the the card, and this is one of those cards that I pretty much watched end to ends. So I'm like, I'm I'm back in the hardcore camp now. You know, just taking in every second of every fight. So, I'm actually able to offer you insight into pretty much all of the card this time. I think first up was young Shiloh De Freitas, And he, I know of Shiloh because I think Don, big Don Smith used to, he's not so big anyway. I am mean, just calling him Donald. Donald Smith used to train him back in the Sims days. So that's how I became aware of Shiloh. And I know there's been this whole goggle box thing that's happened as well, but they've always talked really highly of him. Now, I don't know if we're talking about a world-level guy here, but you're talking about someone who's hungry and keen to learn. And so he's on the undercard, routine win. Like, not much I can write home about on that one. We, we, we're we yet to see what he's capable of. So I'd like to see where he is after seven fights, actually. That's, that's kind of where I put my assessment. I'm going to go through these in order, just in the way that I remember them. Emma Williams is an interesting case. Now, if you remember, Eddie signed him based on social media. Let's be clear about this. It wasn't based on solid fundamentals. Yes, he was a good amateur, but there wasn't depth to his experience. This isn't a kid who took up boxing at 11, and so it was an easy decision to make, if that makes sense. And so he signs Emma Williams, and he... Emma Williams impresses in his early fights. Matchmaking was good, right? And then he kind of became a bit lackluster, and it reflected that lack of experience, that lack of depth. And after taking him on the private jets and flying up here, flying down there with him, talking him up, Eddie just went cold on him because he realized Emma Williams wasn't this wrecking machine. And if you remember the social media exchanges, you saw a guy who was really going through some stuff. You saw a guy who was really going through a struggle. He couldn't understand how he had gone from being all the way up here to being back down here. Now, the problem with that is I don't think he's recovered from that mentally. And I saw the performance on Saturday, and it looked like luster to me. What had always marked Amo Williams out, or Austin Williams out, as, as a fighter to watch was you got the impression that he was proving a point with every punch that he threw he was fighting the naysayers he was fighting all the people who told him he'd never be any good he was fighting all the opponents that said he didn't have enough experience he was fighting every injustice every slight that he felt that he would received in his life and so i watched him on saturday and round after round i didn't see that intensity no it it looked the part but there wasn't that intensity where you're like oh my god he's really trying to take this guy's head off And I think that's where Emma Williams needs to get to because remember, Fowler's still looking at him like, I'm going to take your head off. And so he needs to make a statement to the point where we're calling for the fight with Anthony Fowler or we're calling for the fight with Felix Cash. Maybe that's a step too far. I don't know. But I wasn't impressed with what I saw there. He wasn't what I'll call one of the higher order Americans. You know, the guys who normally come over here and they really put on a clinic. So he didn't do that. And so we've got to park him for now and go, let's see where he is in a couple of fights time because the trajectory is not upwards for him at the moment. It's just my opinion based on what I saw on Saturday night. Um, Touching Hopi Price. I like everything about Hopi Price, but he's just got that, that, that kind of Hosea Burton feel to him where it's long and it's rangy and... You know, when it's all on song, it looks really, really good. But I always get the impression he might not be physically strong enough. And so when he comes up against someone that does have that that compact strength, you know, that that dense muscular strength, is he going to get thrown about? Is he going to get bullied? Because... You can, you can run around and dance around the ring with these, with these journeymen as much as you want. Yeah? They're going to let you do that. Once you move up in levels, guys aren't letting you have that kind of space. Then what are you made of? Are you physically resilient enough to do that? Are you mentally resilient enough to do it? But I like him and I want him to do well. You know, I'm, I'm not one of these guys that I'm going to just hate him because he's a Caldwell fighter. I really want Hopi Price to do well. I just worry that he might be a bit fragile and if you're vulnerable as you get to world level, that will be exposed. But from a technical perspective, everything's nice. The punches happen in the right place, they happen at the right time, they happen in the right way. There's, there's nothing you have to question about him. And you can see why he's won virtually everything he's entered. You know, I know we talk a lot about Dennis McCann and how Dennis McCann is, is the real deal and the next big thing. But him and Hopi Price, in that same discussion, For me, they're guys who, if you manage them carefully and allow them to grow and develop, they can bring World Championship fights home. In terms of Cyrus Pattinson, I'd mark him down as a guy who, we might have another Fred Evans there, just one of those guys who will appear for a bit and then kind of just get lost in the matrix. Maybe actually a bit like Joe Cordina, where you just end up nowhere. Because there's nothing about Pattinson where you're like, that stands out or this stands out. Oh, he's elite at this for sure. He's, he's just a solid fighter. He's a competent fighter who can do his job. Like, I don't know. He's like a Mikasalo in Formula One, isn't he? He's a guy that can get round a track without crashing the car. Johnny Herbert. Um, in terms of rallying, who would it be? Like Malcolm Wilson. Just guys who can get a car around a track. You know, you're you not going to be blown away. You're not going to be disappointed. Just kind of get it done. And so that's what I saw from him, just a workman-like performance where I'd quite like to see some crash, bang, wallop. And I didn't get to see that. So, yeah, the non-televised stuff, that just felt a bit procedural. I'd, I can't say it was a waste of effort because I don't think it was. It was, good for, it was good to see Hopi Price looking good. I quite enjoyed that. I imagine Eddie would have expected more from Ammo Williams. Ammo didn't deliver. Cyrus Pattinson didn't deliver. But I think Hopi e. Price did, and I think that Charlotte Defratus did, if I'm being honest with you. So yeah, the non-televised bit was 50-50. And then we hit the main the main event. We hit the the televised bit, don't we? So I want to start with Johnny Fisher because we need to start being realistic as boxing fans. And Start holding people accountable. We're not far off the sixth anniversary of Conor Ben's debut. We're probably two months away from that. And in the six years we followed Conor Ben and we faithfully followed him, and I've said everything about Conor that I stand by that this was going to be the first reality TV boxing star. Like, I didn't think we'd get the Jake and Logan Pauls of this world coming in. I didn't see that, but I I thought Conor Ben would be that first kind of manufactured career that we would see. I didn't think it would take two years. Not two years, sorry. I didn't think it would take six years. And I didn't think after six years we'd be talking about actually I'd quite like to see him in with some British level guys. I didn't think we'd be at that point. I, I thought we'd have been past that by now because I thought... You know, After he came back from the broken jaw, I was like, nah, nah he, he's he got to kick on now. And Connors look good against people he's meant to look good against. And you're hearing now that he's going to fight Chris Van Heerden, who hasn't been the same since, unfortunately, he lost his father. He hasn't been the same. Because he said it, his father was his inspiration. So Chris Van Heerden, it's not the same Van Heerden that fought Errol Spence. Do not believe the hype. Because you're going to hear that. You're going to hear... Yep, Conor Ben's going to fight Chris Van Heerden. Errol Spence fought Chris Van Heerden. If Conor can stop him before Errol did, that will tell you that he's world level. You're going to hear that. It is not the same Chris Van Heerden. This is Chris Van Heerden that got beaten up by, what do you call him, Conor McGregor. Just have that in your mind for context. So we waited six years for Conor Ben to fight for a world title. He still hasn't fought for one. I don't know if he's even close to fighting for one. And there, there are two reasons behind that. One, Like, 147 is stacked. And number two, those belt holders are killers. Like, you could have the best version of Conor Ben; Those guys are still killers. So I can understand why he wouldn't be there, but he should be in that discussion, and it should be based on merit, not just because his promoter said so. Now, I don't want to go through all of that with Johnny Fisher. I, I I, I don't want to wait six years for Johnny Fisher to fight Dave Allen. Okay, I'm not waiting that long. And my fear is we're going to have to wait that long. I'm genuinely concerned we're going to have to wait that long. And based on what we saw on Saturday night, and I can't remember who the lad is that he fought. Was he Spanish or Argentinian? No idea. But that guy was there to be taken out. Dillian White, four fights in, would have been trying to bomb that guy out. Joshua would have bombed him out. You know, Chisora would have bombed him out. Fury, well, some versions of Fury would have bombed him out. Some wouldn't, if we're being honest. But the fact of the matter is that guy was there not to go six rounds. Or if he got to six rounds, it should have been a miracle. And we should have been saying, wow, how did that happen? But it comes down to the problem. And here's the real problem. This is why the six rounder was probably the worst decision they made. So let's just get to the nub of it. Johnny Fisher can't move his feet. Johnny Fisher cannot jab. Johnny Fisher cannot throw a straight right hand. Johnny Fisher cannot throw a left hook. Right? Forget the right uppercut because that's non-existent until you can do those things first. Now, I'm not saying he'll never be able to do that. But for me, one of the requirements of being televised is you must be able to do that. And I'm all in favor of people telling me, yeah, he's unconventional, he's awkward, he's this, he's that. But even the most awkward of people do some things conventionally and do them well. Because boxing's really about fundamentals. And what are your fundamentals? Knowing what to do and how to do it. They're your fundamentals. Can you jab and move your feet? A lot of people don't. Yeah? Study your fundamentals: technique plus judgment. He didn't have any of those. The reason he was competitive in that fight is he's he's a big guy. What's he? Seventeen stone, seventeen stone three. He's a big physical guy. But that that guy he fought was there to be taken, and he couldn't do it. Once he could, once he realized he wasn't going to bomb that guy out of there, there was no plan. There was no let me jab him to the body to bring his hands down. There was no, let me just pull his hands away to throw something. There wasn't that stuff that you would learn if you'd actually been working on your craft for long enough. And this is why I don't like the idea of people being on TV before they're ready. I can't say to Mark Tibbs, oh mate, you didn't teach him anything because I don't think Mark's had enough time. Right? It seems that they want to rush this guy and I'm sure Mark's there going, he ain't ready. But then I say to Mark, Mark, you're old school. If you're not training Johnny Fisher and you're watching the kid, you're going to say, loan him out to Steve Goodwin. Johnny Fisher will sell out York Hall on his own. Loan him out to Steve Goodwin. Let Steve have him for five fights. Steve, you've got five fights with Johnny Fisher. Yeah, He's good for a thousand tickets every show. And anything he doesn't sell will make up the shortfall. But here are the guys we want him to fight in those five fights at York Hall. They will not be televised. And let him fight five times over the next 12 months. Just have him constantly out there working. That's exactly what you want to do with with anyone. The reason they did it with Mike Tyson is it works. The reason they did it with Muhammad Ali is it works. You have to put money into the guy initially to say, mate, just get out as often as you can. Work on things. That's going to be your job now—just training, sparring, fighting. It wouldn't cost Matchroom that much. It would help. It would help bring attention to more grassroots boxing, and it would help Johnny Fisher learn away from the public glare because he is going to get a hard time until he gets his skill set together. And it's not fair on him. It really isn't fair on him. But if you look at his long-term trajectory, based on what we've seen so far. He won't get further than Dave Allen. He, he's, he's like a basic version of Nick Webb. I'm looking at him going, wouldn't put him in with Chris Healy. Wouldn't put him in with Matt Bennett. Probably wouldn't even put him in with Phil Williams. Not based on that. Definitely wouldn't put him in with a David Adelaide. Definitely wouldn't put him in with a Nick Webb. Definitely wouldn't put him in with a, a Dave Allen. I wouldn't even put him in against Nick Campbell. I think Nick Campbell, who's got a similar story, would beat him. And here's, here's why they're different Nick worked his way up the amateurs, fought in the GB Championship. Like he's, he's, he's boxed as an amateur at a high level. And so he's got fundamentals. And he's got the same size that Johnny Fisher has, probably more so. But if you look at Nick Campbell, it's all happened in the background. It's happened bits here, bits there. Nothing that draws attention. We're not, we're not on this Romford bullshit. We're not on that. So I have to believe Mark Tibbs knows this is the wrong way to build a fighter. But then I'm like, why is he going along with it? No idea. No idea. No idea. But in a world where we criticize trainers for not having a clue, someone has to say to Mark, what's going on? Because what we saw on Saturday, I've never seen anyone come out of a Tibbs gym boxing like that. Ever. In about four weeks' time, we're going to see, uh, what's the kid's name? Thomas Carty. Right? Thomas is going to box on the Lee Wood card. And you'll get to see what, what the amateur background does for you because broadly similar build to Johnny Fisher, similar energy, similar buzz around him, but Thomas Carty's been in the system a long, long time. And so you can make a contrast there just to see what the gap is between those two, but the gap feels big, not insurmountable, but big to the point where I'd almost say someone just take Johnny to the side, Let, just give him to Shane McGuigan for six months and say, look, can he just come to a gym? You've got Dubois, you've got Cody, you've got Billum Smith. He needs to be around all of that. That's how he's going to learn. That would be my take on it. I'm not writing Johnny Fisher off yet, but for me, he's got three fights to show me he knows what he's doing. Forget whether he's any good or not. Just show me you know what you're doing. Now I'm going to come on to the fight that, based on the social media reaction I'm, I'm confused by. Um, Ellie Scottney versus right-hand-throwing lady from Argentina. Apologies, guys, for not remembering the opponent's names. Um, this is what happens when you're distracted by your mum watching the boxing. So let's let's really break down Ellie Scottney right now. And I, I have a feeling people just want to say she ain't shit just so they can go, oh, you lot that said this woman was a real deal, look at you, you're wrong. But let's have a bit of context here. That lady Ellie Scottney fought made her debut at a time when Ellie Scottney was boxing in the school girls or the juniors never really remember which one she was, but she wasn't even old enough to box as a senior. Right. That's the gap. Now Ellie Scottney, four fights, six rounder debut. Yeah. Respect that six rounder, six rounder, eight rounder, 10 rounder. And it's not like she's kept the same level of competition by just increase the rounds, she's increased the rounds and increased the competition. Okay? That's the first thing. The second thing is, Eddie Scottney's a young 23-year-old woman. Remember, Katie Taylor turned pro at 30. Tasha Jonas turned pro past 30. You've got Kelly Harrington, who's got to be 30 now. She doesn't even want to turn pro. But the, the, the women at the top of the tree in this boxing game are over 30. Mostly, there are some exceptions like clarissa Shields, but look, Sav, oh, all these people are—they're—they're they're, they're physically mature, and they're mature as adults. Elle's still growing, and she's still developing, and she's still learning. The fact that she's putting it all on the line like this this quickly is admirable. Like it, she's she's kind of going the same route Amy Timlin went, but hopefully better managed. You know, Amy Timlin's another young lady who probably won't see her best years for another five or six years. I don't think we will see a peak Ellie Scottney till 28. So what do you want her to do between now and her peak? All she can do is challenge herself. So people were like, I thought she lost that. No way in hell did she lose that. No way in hell. People were giving the, the opponent credit because she didn't get bombed out of it. They were giving her rounds for not getting bombed out of there. Not for for landing quality shots because how can you you give someone a round who can't throw a jab? Can't throw a jab, can't throw a left hook, has one shot. And most of the time that shot was just hitting glove and forearm. And then when she'd throw that shot and it wouldn't work, she'd eat a left hook in, in response. So what Ellie did was good. All the right bits were there. All the right ideas were pretty much there. But it comes back to what I keep saying when it comes to boxing. You have to find a way to disrupt your opponent's thought process, right? You have to know what your opponent's trained to do, and you have to disrupt that. That lady that she fought is a right-hand merchant. Probably always will be a right-hand merchant. There'll be no subtlety. There'll be no finesse to what she does at all. All Elle had to do was go, if I neutralize that right hand, I'll find a home for the double left hook. If I find a home for the double left hook, I'll find a home for the right uppercut. But to do that, I have to scatter her defenses. What's the easiest way to scatter her defenses? Disrupt her with a jab. We didn't see enough of that. I don't know if L took her lightly, I've no idea, but I always say this you, you show true respect for the sport of boxing when you focus on your jab. Once you do that, everything will flow naturally. But I thought Elle did enough to win that fight. I don't think, don't even think it was a draw. I thought she, she 96, 94, that fight for me would be my assessment of it. And I'm just talking without any deduction, just in terms of rounds. Ninety six, ninety four. Now, when you go back to the drawing board, as athletes love to say, what do you work on? Number one, you work on doubling up on your hands. You know, we'll come on to the John Ryder fight later, but he was good at doing that, and Jacobs didn't have a read on that, and he didn't know what to do. Elle needs to do that. She also needs to believe in herself. Like One of the things I've said to Elle before is she needs to believe she's as special as she can be. And part of that is walking into that ring, saying, "I'm going to dominate," and that means not letting your opponent breathe, not letting her think, not letting her get an ounce of confidence. But these are things you learn as you mature as an adult. You don't, you know. I'm trying to think of a of a good example of this. Like poor Pogba, nah, nah I want to get too much stick for that, when someone so to park that. Think back to Jordan Henderson at Sunderland, and think to Jordan Henderson now. And look at that gap. Sadio Mane at Southampton, Sadio Mane at Liverpool. Momo Salah at Chelsea, Momo Salah at Liverpool. De Bruyne at Chelsea, De Bruyne at Man City. You need that growth. That's how you become world-class. So I'm saying this to say to people, and, and it's the same with Johnny Fisher as well. We need to get behind these guys. And then in return, what we expect from them is to show us that they know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, everything else we can be patient for. But you've got to show us you know what the hell you're doing because to be sat in front, no, I'll rephrase it, to be beamed in front of hundreds, if not thousands of homes, <laughs> to zone, should be a privilege and not one that you should take lightly. And I think sometimes people don't have that hunger and that intensity. I, I used to love the Hearn rhetoric where he was like, winner stays on. I wish that had been true. But he hasn't stuck to that word because it should be winner stays on. You want to be televised? Cool. You've got to know that this slot is open to anyone who can entertain the fans. I think Ellie does entertain the fans. I think Ellie will continue to entertain the fans. I think she just needs to be smarter and cuter with it. And it's down to being a true combination puncher like, like she used to be. I worry that she's drifting from her essence. Ellie's a combination puncher. She'll stay right there with you and throw those hooks and those uppercuts. And that's all she needs to do. She's not going to be a long-range boxer controlling things with a jab. She's not going to be that because I don't think that would make her happy in the ring. I'd like to see more combination punching, greater intensity, and that ability to prevent your opponent doing what they want to do. And I think if you do that, she'll be a world champion pretty quickly because... Everything else is there. I'm still confident that there's a a lot of upside to Elle and she will go as far as she wants to go. She wants to be the greatest of all time. She can be the greatest of all time. It's all entirely up to her. And let's just switch quickly to Felix Cash, who fought the Russian guy, Madiev, which was an interesting fight because for, for large portions of that fight, Felix Cash didn't look in trouble. But at the point where he did look in trouble, he looked in trouble. And there's something compelling and definitely watchable about Felix Cash because he's vulnerable like that. I know Denzel Bentley will be there going, if I'd landed one of my shots, he, he wouldn't have made it to the end of that fight. But it's hard to tell. I think for that British title, Felix was motivated. He was hungry. And he hadn't really left camp. For this fight, it felt a bit different. Like There were you know, bits of boxing, I don't know what you call it, you know, rumor and gossip that things weren't quite right with Felix. And that can happen sometimes when you don't feel your career is progressing at the speed that it should and you're watching everyone just shoot past you. And you know, other things in life get in the way too. You know, I think Eddie Hearn tweeted it perfectly when he said, sometimes you don't know what's going on in a boxer's life. I think, you know, that probably encapsulated Felix. If you saw the, the post-fight interview he did where he just couldn't hold it together, and the, the, you could see that he'd been through a lot. I think this happens a lot in boxing where people carry some of their greatest pains into that ring. And normally you wouldn't know unless you ask. So I'm hoping that he's over the worst of it now. And hopefully through boxing and through being more active, he can find some kind of catharsis in therapy, man. Because I've said it before, but I'll say it again. You know, we're on here, we criticize, we make jokes about stuff. But deep down, as a boxing community, we care about each other. We just have different roles to perform in the ecosystem. But if someone is hard up, we'll all pull together and help. That's one thing I do love about the sport. But if you look at this fight against M- Madiev who isn't a puncher, by the way, isn't heavy-handed by any stretch of the imagination, but if it, it repeats a, a common pattern in Felix Cashier's career, definitely in the last five or six fights. Against British opponents, he tends to stop them. Against international opponents, they tend to go the distance. Now, I, I don't know why they're going through all of those fights. My, my suspicion is they're just bred and conditioned tougher elsewhere. I just think British fighters in general are quite soft. Because we don't pre-select for toughness. We we value stuff like skill and our ability to make money off someone over whether they're gnarly and tough and able to to do damage. And Madev was able to do damage. I think his challenge in this fight was he didn't know how to hurt Felix Cash consistently. And sometimes you've just got to know that actually if I just keep shooting that to his body, let me test him out, let me put my head on his chest and bully him backwards. I think he was just caught between so many options. I wish he had just said, I'm going to maul this guy. I think whoever decides to maul Felix Cash, don't try and outbox him because you can get fooled. People hear the post-fight interviews and think Felix Cash isn't that bright. He's a hell of a boxer. A hell of a boxer. And people need to have some respect for that. He's a hell of a boxer. And he will get to you. So I think the way to beat Felix Cash is just to maul him. Make it horrible in there. That will tire him out. And once you start tiring someone out, they start making mistakes that you can capitalize on. Maddie found that. In that last round, I thought Felix should have lost two points for holding. I think the ref should have let it be a fair contest and see if he could get the stoppage towards the end of the fight. But they didn't do that because it's a British ring. And they're the sort of things we don't like. I don't think the result was a fix because I think, what was it, two cards of 95, 92, one of 94, 93, which is like you either score the fight eight rounds to two, not ridiculous, but a bit unfair, or you scored it seven to three, which I think is probably the more realistic scorecard. But either way, Madiev would have needed a a closer fight than that in order to win. But I'm happy for Felix Cash. I don't know what he does next, because they say he's mandatory for for this and for that. He can fight for the European... Okay, fine. But at some point I'd like to see him fight someone like Fowler because I think him and Fowler are quite similar stylistically. And from an experience perspective, I think they've got a lot of overlap. And so I'd quite like to see that. Fowler at 160, Cash at 160, you know, you're not going to question the physique of either man, you're not going to question, you know, the the engine and professionalism of either man, but they're both vulnerable. That's what makes it compelling that they're both vulnerable. I don't think he wants any parts of Chris Eubank Jr. right now, though. I think there's a lot more work to do with Felix before he's ready for that. But at some point, that fight will make sense. But I think, yeah, I, I just give Felix Cash my best. I, I wish him all the best. Um, now that he's already fought Denzel, I don't have any negative feelings towards him. Let him go off and do his thing. He's 15-0. He's and 0. He's proved that he doesn't duck anyone. Good luck to him right it's probably about time we touched on the main event I mean I've, I've held on to you guys for 45 minutes so far Danny Jacobs versus John Ryder was interesting didn't really know what to make of it because if you really think about Danny Jacobs's career his best wins Peter Quillin, and Peter Quillen hasn't boxed for a long time I'm not even sure Quillen fought did he ever fight after Jacobs he probably did but just no one of any note so Danny Jacobs has that really odd career and it's kind of a George Groves-ish career where they've been in big fights. But when you start to list their major wins, it's a bit underwhelming. Whereas John Ryder's the opposite where you kind of expect John Ryder to, to kind of have like a, a small hall plus type CV. But actually, he's been in some competitive fights where you did not think he would be competitive. Probably hasn't had the luck of, you know, some of his contemporaries, you know, in terms of A injuries, focus, dedication. But it seems that he's having his purple patch, you know, whatever you want to ascribe there Too, he's having a purple patch. And I know people will be saying, are you talking nuts, berries and juices? And my argument back is, if I am, it would have been true on both sides. I don't believe, I believe that if, if one's at it, they're both at it. But we've, you've got this Danny Jacobs guy who, who's kind of manufactured a career for himself. And I'm not going to knock that because he's been well paid for it. But he's not a world beater. He just isn't. And so at 35 years old, you're like, what's this guy got? And we know he's run his body pretty hard. That's why he's called the Miracle Man. His body's been through a lot. Aged prematurely? Don't know. John Ryder wasn't to know. John Ryder just knows you're against Danny Jacobs. You know, the fact that there wasn't a massive fanfare about having Danny in London tells you what the public thought of Danny Jacobs as an opponent. But if you look at the fight, first half of the fight, Jacobs is winning. Well, don't, don't, don't get confused. He's winning, but he's not winning convincingly. He's, he's using experience, Right. And he's capitalizing on the things that John Ryder probably doesn't know. You know it, a mild form of old manning John Ryder. But John never stopped pressing. That was the key thing. John never really stopped pressing. And you got the impression that over time, John was going to figure out what he could get away with and what he couldn't get away with. And once he refined it down to what worked, Danny was going to be in a lot of trouble because Danny wasn't pulling away. When you're on top of an opponent, you have to pull away. Maybe drop him, cut him, have his nose bleeding, something. Just to, just to show the judges there's clear water here between him and I. Danny didn't do that. So however you had that fight after six, five, one, four, two. You know, I had it 4-2 to Danny. But it wasn't an easy 4-2. It was a, yeah, it's 4, but whoo. I don't know if he can carry on like this for the second half of the fight. And so it proved because Ryder looked to be the bigger guy in there. He looked to be the bigger guy. He looked to be the stronger guy. And he did the thing we were talking about earlier with Eddie Scotney. John Ryder was just throwing that double left, which Danny couldn't read. And he couldn't read John's kind of lunging in. He, there's not much he... Maybe he hadn't seen someone like, like that before. Maybe he should have called a good friend of mine, Chris Chapman, who boxed at light middle. And he was a southpaw and he was quite rugged like that too. And that's what you're really looking for. But John kept coming and kept pressing. And it wasn't great. It was crude. But what it was, was it was mauling and it was marauding. And what it said was, I may not have the skill and the accolades you have, Danny Jacobs, but I'm going to take those away from you as well. And he did that. And what Danny Jacobs couldn't do after he got into that kind of old man groove, he couldn't plant his feet and go, I'm going to take this guy out. He just couldn't. The tank was emptying. His spirit was emptying. This wasn't an easy night like he thought it was going to be. And he felt very old. He seemed to age 10 years in that fight. Almost as if his body had just told him, I've had enough. There's not much more I can give. And so when people say John Ryder got away with one day, I don't think he did. John, John. By the end of that fight, John looked like the more dominant guy in there. And I'm not one for sentimentality and back the Brit. I just thought John Ryder in that second half of the fight, Maybe won four of those rounds, maybe five. Hard to give a round to Danny Jacobs. Not sure what was going on in that corner, but they, they didn't seem to know what to do with him either. So by the end of the fight, when I heard people saying it was a robbery, I was like, no, no way is that a robbery. One round, either, one round to either guy in a draw were the three acceptable options you could have. And that's broadly where the scorecards ended up. Some people say it's poetic justice for what happened between John Ryder and Callum Smith. Maybe, but let's look beyond that. So now John Ryder's in that mix for a WBA title shot. You know, they're talking about he'll fight Canelo. He won't fight Canelo. He absolutely will not fight Canelo. He will fight someone handpicked by Matchroom for that WBA title when they go vacant. And then, then you'll start to hear them calling out Charlo and this and the other. But just put John Ryder in with Demetrius Andrade. You really want to find, Put him in with Demetrius Andrade. It's not hard. But they won't put John Ryder in with Demetrius Andrade because Andrade will not. <laughs> he will not do a, a Danny Jacobs. No. Andrade will get a knockdown. He'll get a cut. He'll get something that, that puts a dent in John Ryder. Although, having said that, I can also see if the belt goes vacant, Billy Joe Saunders versus John Ryder rematch for a vacant belt. I can also see that happening too. But my point is, I'm glad to see John Ryder at least gets this opportunity. You know, let, let him have a go, find out his level, and then pff, his career is probably done in a year, year and a half anyway, and he can look back on it with fond memories. But kudos to him. Uh Definitely a more entertaining fight in the second half than it was in the first. In the first, I was was bitterly disappointed. It felt like Rosado Martin. But as Jacobs began to fade, it became a more compelling fight. And it was just a question of, can Danny Jacobs hang on till the end? Which he did just about. So one of the interesting things with this fight card is it didn't move us on. Which is unusual for a Hearn show. It just didn't move us on. I'm no closer to know who these guys are going to fight next. And broadly, I'm okay with it. It's one of those cards, like we said earlier, it had to happen. And I'd I'd like to see more. But the real winner for me of the weekend was Frank Warren. Because if you remember the build-up to this, Eddie was very bullish on why Frank doesn't Get asked tough questions. You know, he put a lot of pressure on Umar, which I wasn't happy with because, as you all know, I think Umar's been fair to everyone he's asked questions to, and he asks questions like a fan, and I like that. It's just that at this point, Eddie's down and Frank's up, so Eddie's doing what everyone does when they're down, blaming everyone but himself. But Frank would have loved that because Eddie's doing shows in the Alexandra Palace, and, you know, Eddie was laughing at Frank for doing shows at the Royal Albert Hall. So, you know, reality comes home to roost, I guess, for some people. So they released the Frank Warren interview with Umar on Sunday. I haven't heard all of it, but I heard the first half. And I think my highlight from that was when Frank was just like, just ask Eddie how many subscribers in does zone have in the UK? And I thought, whew, okay, that would be interesting. Because I have a feeling we're fast getting to the point where DAZN are going to have the death spiral. Where so few people watch the DaZone show that it doesn't justify the expenditure you need to put superstars on there. And so you end up in a death spiral where you just get more Johnny Fishers and fewer Danny Jacobs because the money's just not there anymore. Now, how do you correct that death spiral? Sometimes you've got to cut the head off the monster, start again. I would. I I don't know what the severance deal is for the Matchroom-to-Zone contract, but I would seriously start looking at some kind of severance deal. And I'd say, right, we're going to put all of our eggs in the Oscar basket. Because I think British fans would back Oscar more than they'd back Eddie. It's just my opinion on it. Don't be surprised if you see some some machinations in the background around that. And then what would Matchroom do? Would you just get Matchroom TV? I, I genuinely don't know. But it all depends on what's in the severance package of the contract. But decent night. Uh, it was good to, to watch boxing with my mum, actually. And some people asked me if the, the tweets I was writing were true. And they, they actually were true. My mum literally sits down. It's like, I haven't really sat down and watched the boxing for years. And she's telling me stories about how they used to go to the cinema to watch Ali versus Liston. Ali versus Cooper. Yeah, she was talking about being in Edinburgh for the second Ali Frazier fight. And she's talking about the rumble in the jungle, the thrill in Manila. Like My mum's just literally just dropping bombs. She, she was a fan of Sugar Ray Leonard. She liked Hagler. And then she was like, No, I preferred Eubank to Ben. He was, he was funny. So my mum's just there, just dropping these bombs. I'm like, Wow. Is this where I get it from? I hope not. I used to think I got it from my dad. But she was there. and She was she was offering quite insightful things. So she she's a fan of Ellie Scottney. She thinks Ellie's too brave for her own good. But she's a big fan of Ellie. Uh, wasn't a fan of Johnny Fisher. Couldn't understand why he was so wild with his shots when he could have just simplified it. But she also quite liked John Ryder. She was cheering on John Ryder, actually. So... Yeah, yeah, mum really got stuck into it. She tried the same with the rugby. I don't think her rugby knowledge is as deep, but she remembered that England lost to Scotland, which she enjoyed because when she first landed in the UK, she spent her early years in Scotland. So my mum deep down identifies herself as Scottish. You know, if Scotland was independent, she'd get a Scottish passport. And so, yeah, she was there. You know, she was cheering on Italy on Sunday, but they got nil, so it wasn't great. But that was good. Actually, good watching boxing with my mum. You know, hadn't done that in a while. So that was all true, and it was it was actually pretty funny, and it was it was quite nice. And I say to people, man, if if you do have your parents, make the most of the days you have with them. If you only have one parent, make the most you, most of the days you have with that parent. If you have none, my sympathies because I can't imagine how hard that is, especially at those key moments in your life. So. Yeah, you you have my respect for being able to soldier on day after day. I know it can't be easy. And on that solemn note, I will sign off and say sorry that it's been this long, but you know Mon- Monday mass might have to be that long. And on that note, I'll say goodbye. Take
1: care, guys. Irrespective of that, um, you should. You know, I've got Go on, stay, um, I got Cogon and asked him, "How many subscribers?" questions you can ask him that you should ask him that next time you should ask him um you know what does he think about now that uh the deal he's telling everybody that was going to happen between uh bt and the zone didn't happen